Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Stephen, I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill and just want to welcome you. I'm so glad that you chose to worship with us today. And if you are a guest with us today, uh, I would invite you to find that blue card in your seat. It should be right around you. If you can't find it, just ask someone near you. There will be one pretty close to you. Um, and that is a way for us to connect with you. And so uh, if you'll just fill out that card, um, we will follow up, uh, get a little bit of information about you and help connect you to what's going on here at City on a Hill. You can also do that at coahforesthills.org slash connect. If you want to do it digitally. And uh, for doing so, we will send you a $5 gift card to a local coffee shop here uh, in the neighborhood, as well as make a $5 donation uh, to a list of charities that are going to be in an email that we send to you uh, just as a, as a thank you for being here today. Um, our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. Uh, the gospel is the good news. Uh, that Jesus gave his life for us, that we were once separated from God because of our sin and because now, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, um, we can have a new relationship with God if we trust him and ask him to forgive us of our sins. And so if you've not entered into that life-giving relationship with God today, I would love to talk with you about how to do that. Secondly is community. Community is the idea that we are brought together from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that God has brought us together as people with uh, unique uh, differences that are both beautiful uh, and, 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 and brings us together as the church. And so as we see that, we live that out together um, as this picture of one day when every tribe, tongue, and nation will glorify God together. And lastly, mission. Mission means that the good news should be told to others. So we live our lives to tell others about what Jesus has done for us as well as live life shaped by that loving and serving our neighbors as Jesus has served us. Uh, a few announcements before we jump into the text today. Uh, coming up uh, in uh, next Sunday, we're having a baptism class here uh, upstairs in the office. Um, if you are interested in baptism, maybe you've made a step recently and made a, faith, made a step of faith to trust Jesus, um, or you've never been uh, baptized as a believer, we'd love to talk with you about doing so. Maybe you, you're exploring faith and you want to know what that looks like. Please sign up for that class. You can do that at our events page, coaforesthills.org slash events. Uh, we'd love for you to be a part of that. Also, for those, a reminder, uh, baby dedication. We're having our baby dedication class after the service today uh, upstairs in the office. Um, so next is uh, our leader lab. If you are uh, new to City on a Hill or you are looking for a way to learn uh, and understand your gifting, uh, you want to know how to um, grow as, 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 a, as a leader, you want to find a place to lead here at City on a Hill, uh, just text LEAD to 617-958-6008 and we will follow up with you and we'll send you a, um, we'll send you a survey you can fill out and we'll be starting that leader lab late in, in late uh, March and this is really going to be self-driven and we're going to meet once a month uh, to, to discuss what we've been learning. Um, and then lastly, uh, this week, uh, we started Lent. We had our Ash Wednesday service this past Wednesday. Really incredible time doing that. And this coming week, we are going to go through some guided fasting. Fasting is a way for us to enter into a season of not just denying ourselves, not just saying, well, you know, I'm gonna show how much willpower I have. Uh, we do it so that um, we can tune our hearts to God. So our desires are meant to drive us to Jesus. And so as we deny ourselves, when we feel that urge to pick up our cell phone or whatever, um, we can, uh, we can, it drives us to Jesus. So there's something uh, different for each day. Um, and so on Monday, we're going to be um, asking people, you know, whatever you listen to, whether that's a 
podcast, music, whatever, just don't do that. Some of you, that's gonna be really hard. Um, Tuesday, uh, you know, fast from, from TV or anything you're watching. Wednesday, social media or, or even your cell phone altogether. I know, shocking, I know. Um, Thursday, from, um, from some sort of a drink like coffee or alcohol. And then lastly, on Friday, we would invite you to, um, to uh, fast from a meal or if you're able to, uh, medically, if you feel able to, um, fast the entire day. And then Saturday morning at nine o'clock here at the church, we are going to have a big break, break the fast breakfast together. So we invite all of you to come be a part of that after that week of, of, of fasting. Uh, and so you can sign up for that on our events page. Just let us know you're coming. If you don't sign up, we'll, we'll have an extra biscuit or something for you. So uh, be sure to come. Well, I'm glad to be back with you. Last week, um, I was out of town. Um, I was actually, uh, sir, oh, actually one of our mission partners. We have several churches that support us and help fund us. And so big thank you to Shades Mountain Baptist Church, which uh, supports us and was able to uh, have me out for a week. Um, and so, you know, they, we exist because of them. So we be thankful for, should be thankful for them. Uh, but Bland Mason, who is the pastor at our uh, congregation in Brookline, was able to teach last week. And we've been in this kind of mini series within our broader series in Ephesians on relationships. And so we've been looking at, we looked at marriage two weeks ago. We'll look at that again today. And because of the scheduling, I had him talk about parenting last week from Ephesians chapter six. And he's kind of the perfect guy to talk about it because he's 50. He has kids in their 20s. So we know it's not a fluke that he has good, good kids. He has good kids who love Jesus. Um, and also he has a just a stockpile full of dad jokes. It was perfect for him to come and teach on parenting. And so this morning I'm jumping back into the second sermon that we're gonna be doing on marriage. And I really didn't feel like this was something that I could ask a guest preacher to speak on because I really want to communicate this clearly. I wanna make sure I walk through this tenderly as we talk about this. There's lots of landmines we could possibly step on when talking about marriage. Uh, and also as I read over this passage, I was like, you know, I could, I could preach Ephesians 21, 5, 21 through 33 in one sermon and kind of do a flyover, or I could preach this in 10. So, um, so, it, it, so it's kind of tough to communicate all of this in two sermons. And so I'm gonna really do my best, but if you want to read some more on this, we have several books back at the back table, the connect table to the right, um, which is where you can drop that connection card. Um, you, those books are there. We're asking for like seven dollars. If you if you don't have it, that's fine. Don't we don't want that to be an impediment. But just that's that, that's we're actually taking a loss on those books. But. Um, Grab a book if you want to read a little bit more on any of these topics. But to kind of bring you up to speed, two weeks ago, we looked at marriage, kind of a broader flyover of what marriage is. And we talked about how marriage is a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman that God gave us this picture as a picture of Christ's love for the church. And so the first idea we looked at is that marriage models a greater principle. It models the principle we see in Ephesians 5.21, where it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus because we, we, we were called to love and serve each other. Marriage points to that greater principle. Secondly, marriage reflects a greater love. In verses 25 through 26, we see how husbands are to love their wives as Christ has loved the church, laying their lives down for them. And that that type of love, we're supposed to import that into our relationships with each other in the church. And then thirdly, that marriage points to a greater reality. So whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're divorced, whether you're widowed, whatever it might be, it, marriage is meant to point you to Jesus's love for you. And this is why there's something here for you, whether you're married, singled, widowed, divorced, because Jesus died for you and wants to, wanted to make you his own. And so today we're gonna get down into the weeds. We're gonna look at this practically and ask, how do we actually do this? 
How do we live this out? And so again, I wanna know, I wanna be extremely careful. I wanna be uh, sensitive. I know there's, there's lots of hurts, hurt around this topic. There's some, some kind of landmine words in this passage. I just wanna, we're gonna be very tender over these. And so, because I know people have different experiences. And so again, as you read this, I wanna be very clear. If you read this clearly and you read this biblically and you read this as Paul intended it to be read, there is no possible way you can come out of this thinking that you can subjugate another person. There's no way that you can come out of this thinking that this is an excuse to abuse another person because what is undergirding this is the principle of love. And to, to say that this was, is an excuse for subjugation or abuse is unloving. It's actually an abuse of scripture. And so we're gonna be focusing on these broader principles of what it looks like to, to, to be fulfilled and thrive in marriage. So we're gonna answer two questions today. First question we're gonna answer is, how does marriage work and then secondly, what are the keys to, to thriving relationally? So how does marriage work and what are the keys to thriving relationally? So let's dive into that first question about how marriage works. So two weeks ago, I touched on the idea of headship. And so this is really key to understanding what's being said in verses 22 through 25, the, the call for, for women, uh, for the wives to submit to their husbands and for husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Now remember, head, the word head here has to do with being the source. It means where life comes from. It's, it's the idea of, 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 of like, a, like a river head that is giving water to other tributaries and lakes. And the metaphor here is the idea of a head and a body. A head and a body. And the idea of a head and a body here is that the idea that you cannot have a head without a body. You can't have a body without a head. What we see in a marital relationship between a man and a woman is a complementary and interdependent relationship. You can't have one without the other. They need each other. And we see this all the way back in creation, in Adam and Eve, which we, the way that wives and husbands relate to one another is rooted in this creation order. And we see that both Adam and Eve are equally made in the image of God. We touched on this a couple of weeks ago, but I just wanna make sure we, we recap on this clearly. And we see this idea, they're both made in the image of God. You can't fully express the image of God without both of them. And we note from the creation story that Adam was created from the dust and that Eve was created from Adam, Adam as the source. Now this tells us something because Eve was not created from Adam's feet and that she was under him. She wasn't created from his head that she was above him, but was taken from his rib, meaning that she was side by side with Adam, that they were walking together as man and woman created to glorify God together. And the word that is used to describe Eve is the word helper. Now, I know when we think of the word helper, we think of it like someone who's an assistant. The way the Bible understands the word helper is one who completes what is missing, one who completes what is lacking. In other words, in Genesis chapter two, as the animals are being paraded before Adam and none is able to be a proper companion for him, what's being said is that no one other than woman could complete Adam, could complete mankind. So man and woman need one another. And while man and woman individually reflect the glory of God and reflect the image of God, men and women working together give us a much clearer picture. It's kind of like a piece of aluminum foil. You can see your reflection in a piece of aluminum foil, as long as you haven't crumpled it up into a ball. It's a clean sheet, but it's kind of distorted. 
You can look at it, you can kind of make out that there's something there. The same thing if you were to take a clear pane of glass and you were to look at that, you can kind of see a reflection at the sun's right, but honestly, you're seeing through it. But what happens if you were to take that piece of aluminum foil and put it behind that clear piece of glass? What would you end up making? You make a mirror. Man, and, and I'm not gonna say who's the aluminum foil and who's the glass between man, probably men because we're dull, as, we're not gonna go there. Um, but the idea that Working together, side by side, they fully reflect the glory of God. And marriage is a picture of this as you take two people who complement one another and who need each other to show this greater picture. This is no more clear than in my marriage to Amy, my wife. Uh, Amy, um, she comes from a culture where fun involves extreme cold and high exertion. That's all that they do. We were talking about this yesterday with some people talking about you know, being from Alaska and, and where she's from in Alaska is like kind of like Siberia. Like that's the, that's the climate we're talking about. So you are bred tough if you grew up in Alaska. Um, she is extremely detail-oriented. She is, you know, she is not the most spontaneous person. She's fun, but she's not the person at like nine, 10 o'clock at night is gonna say, let's go, let's go somewhere. Let's go travel. Let's go watch a movie. I, on the other hand, am that person. I'm like, kids, we're getting in the car. The movie started eight minutes ago. We gotta go. Like that, that's my personality. I, I grew up in a culture where we valued beauty and where we valued going very slow because we were full of biscuits and gravy. And, and I'm, I'm adventurous and, and I, I'm someone who doesn't really deal with my emotions very well. And so Amy is it's my safe place to, to kind of be my emotional outlet. And when I get all emo and I'm out in the ocean on my emotion, she's like, no, no, come on back to shore. Like we work well together. We complement each other. And we see this within the church in God's design of men and women, not just married couples, but men and women working side by side, each being equipped in their gifting, expressing their gifting for the full flourishing of the body of Christ as the elders who act as fathers, shepherd and release people to do the work of ministry. We need one another. Marriage also works in the fact that a man and a woman nourish each other. Verses 26 through 28 actually kind of puts the emphasis on men here. I'm gonna to get to that in a second. But the idea is that the head and the body, they help each other. They, they, they nourish one another. Now, the emphasis here is on husbands. And I do think that husbands play a unique role in the life of their family. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of challenge you men. I'm gonna be very frank about this here for a second. Men in a marital relationship carry a greater weight and responsibility for the spiritual well-being of their household. And I really do believe that where a husband goes, the house will go. And so if you wanna see your household grow spiritually, you've gotta take the responsibility upon yourself. It doesn't mean that both don't play a part. It doesn't mean that both aren't important. It doesn't mean that both don't help nourish. But I do believe that if you look at statistics, when a husband is the one who is driving the family to church, there's a much higher likelihood that kids will come to faith in Jesus and that a spouse will come to faith in Jesus. There's something about this that men have to take the responsibility in. But it goes both ways. The head helps, flourish, helps the body flourish and the body helps the head flourish. The, your brain loves your body. When, when you start to get hungry, what starts happening? Your brain starts to send signals to your body that you need to eat. It starts sending signals to your body that you're feeling sluggish, you need to go outside for a walk or go exercise. 
When, when your body is falling towards the ground, what do, you, what do your hands do automatically? They go to cover your head. I was riding one of those bird scooters, never again, uh, a couple of years ago, and I'm just kicking along. It's a beautiful day in August. I'm going along, and there's a speed bump coming up, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to avoid the speed bump. So I try to get up onto the sidewalk, and as I go, I hit the tiniest little crack in the sidewalk, and the scooter stops, and I do not. And I keep going, and I'm going head first towards the sidewalk, and what do I automatically do without even thinking? I put my hands up. I end up breaking my hand because I wanted to protect my head. In the same way, the body and the head work together in a complementary and interdependent way. We help each other flourish, we nourish one another, and we protect each other. Now, can you grow mentally when the body is failing? Absolutely. Can you grow your mind stronger without working your body? But when they're working together, they stimulate each other. Now, the issue of, of headship that we see here in the scriptures does come down to decision-making. And this is probably where we have the most tension. This is probably where there's the most heartache. And I wanna be very clear again on this, that this, this passage has been used to be abusive. And anyone who uses it that way doesn't understand the scriptures and doesn't understand the love of Jesus. When we look at what's being described here in this intersection, this, this relationship between husband and wife, again, this is not unconditional obedience. This is not saying that whatever one person says goes. It is absolutely not saying that because if someone asks you to do something wrong, that's, that's ungodly. You follow God, not man. If someone's asking you, is dehumanizing you in the way that they're making decisions, that's not godly. If someone is asking you to do something that is immoral, that is not godly. It's not unconditional obedience. It's also not without consensus. A husband and a wife should be having really good dialogue when it comes to any decision-making. And then lastly, it's not all women to men. Some have used this as a way to say that all women should be sub submit to all men. That is absolutely not what the Bible says. But the way Tim Keller used, describes this is he describes this idea as tie-breaking authority. And he makes this point, and I wanna be very clear about this. He makes this point that the grand majority of conversations, the grand majority of decisions happen through consensus. They happen when, two, when a husband and a wife are walking through, digging in, asking really hard questions. And Keller, who's been married for over 40 years, says that maybe only five or six times in his marriage has he ever had to come to a place where there was a complete impasse and he had to make a decision. I think about my, my own marriage, I can only think of maybe one or two times where we've disagreed on something to a point where it's like we, just, we had to make a decision on something. And, and Keller goes on to say this, he says, there's no such thing as a purely egalitarian marriage because someone has to make the decision. And not just make a decision, someone has to bear the responsibility of that decision. And he even says that you know, if you just passively refuse to make one where nobody's willing to take a stand, then you're making a decision. But at times, sometimes a decision has to be made. And what happens when that final call happens, the husband is saying, because I love Jesus I'm, and because I love my wife, I'm gonna bear the responsibility of this. And what the wife is doing in this decision is saying, I've wrestled with this with you. I've, I've discussed this with you. I'm gonna go with you in this and I'm not gonna say I told you so at the end and I'm gonna work with you in order to make sure that our family flourishes. And now within, so within, an, a, within a healthy marriage, 
it's never a husband just making a decision and saying, look, I told you this is what we're gonna do. But it's lots of discussion, lots of wrestling, going to the mat, praying, maybe even arguing. Because again, you have a husband and a wife side by side, complimenting each other, completing each other, needing each other. And we see here that the wife's act of worship to Jesus is that maybe at a time when she doesn't fully agree, says, I trust you and I'm going with you. We're gonna go through this together. Now, I want you to notice the call to the husband. It doesn't say demand your way. It simply says, love your wife. And in fact, if we were to look at what Paul said to the Corinthians, he says, love does not demand its own way. This is never an excuse to say, well, I I get to make the decisions. It says, what does it say? It says that you are to love her as what? Christ loves the church. Guys, what did Jesus do? He died. Husbands, are you willing to die to yourselves? Are you willing to to break the tie when it means you have to admit that you're wrong? Does it mean that you are willing to put your preferences aside for the betterment of your family? It means making decisions that lead her to Jesus. It means leading with patience and with care. And in a marriage, on big decisions, what you're gonna often see is that there are times where one person in the relationship is outpacing the other. And this isn't because one's more godly. It's not because one just has them all together. Sometimes you just, you arrive at places at different times. Sometimes you think differently. Probably the, the best example of this I can think of from our own life is when Amy and I were exploring the calling to church planting. This is church plant number two. We were just crazy enough to do it a second time. The first time we did it, we went back to Birmingham, Alabama, where I'm from. We were living in Arizona. And we were gonna, we, I, was, I said, Amy, I really feel like God is calling us to plant a church. And Amy was like, I, I don't know that, I don't know. I don't know if that's, that's what God's calling us to do or not. And I said, okay. And so she, she, but I trust my wife and I trust that she's gonna pray. I trust that she's gonna think about it and research and consider it. She's gonna go to the Lord with this. And, and so over five months, I was able to patiently walk with her and I'd bring it up and check in and see where she was at. We would walk through it together and we eventually came to a decision. And at the end of this, I've got to bear the weight of that decision. I could be wrong. We, we could fail. Like we could have moved there and I completely missed what God was calling us to do. But Amy says, I'm re- with you regardless of how this turns out. And not just that, I'm gonna make sure that I do whatever I can to help make this happen because I'm with you and we're in this together. And so when, when a wife defers to her husband, this is never something that's demanded, but this is a freely given act of worship to Jesus. And I actually do believe that this can create a safety net within a marriage so that whoever's loudest doesn't get their way. It's actually, in this culture, put a governor on husbands who are used to treating their wives like property. It says, no, 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 you need to slow down and love and care for your wife. It means that the person who is the most stubborn or the most passive doesn't get their way. But what it says is the Bible tells us that we submit to each other in unique ways, mutually self-giving toward one another, you'll flourish. You'll never be more loved. You'll never be more honored. Now, how this works out practically within a marriage, there's a really broad range a really broad range of how this, how you make decisions and who does what, because marriage is a global reality. We are a multicultural church. From culture to culture, marriages are going to look different. Who does what is going to look different. Who makes the most money or not may look different. We can't say that 
Western stereotypes or Eastern stereotypes are the way that a marriage must function. I think you should play into your strengths. Maybe one person is better with their hands and one person's better at cooking, another person's more artistic or whatever it might be. And those don't have to follow along like you know traditional gender roles and lines. We play into our strengths. I think another way that we do this is that you communicate often. Constructive discussion and even conflict leads to greater intimacy with Jesus. Now, again, I know that there's a lot around this subject that is traumatic. Some of you may have experienced the negative side of this personally. Maybe, maybe you're in a marriage where you, you don't feel loved or you don't feel respected or you grew up in a household where you, saw, you had a father who was cruel to your mother. And I wanna say, first of all, I'm sorry personally. I'm sorry that you had to endure that. And I'm also sorry that sometimes the church misses the boat on this. Sometimes the church is not very good at loving and caring for people around this subject. And so with that in mind, I wanna make myself available. If any of you, like there's, this has been traumatic for you, like this subject, I'd love to talk with you. I'll sit down with you. Amy and I will sit down with you. Um, we have a biblical counseling center here in Boston that we'll pay for the first session for you to go to. Um, we, we want to make sure that people are cared for well in this. Another way that marriage works is that marriage is a way to practice the gospel. Why do you practice anything so that you get better at it and so that it becomes second nature? I, I was on Instagram a couple of months ago and I saw this guy playing piano and he was so good that when he made a mistake, it was still beautiful. Marriage has that potential that when you make a mistake and things seemingly go wrong, something beautiful can come out of it because marriage can become a grounds for gospel growth. Again, marriage is this covenant relationship meant to be inseparable, saying I'm fully 100% yours, I'm committed to you. And that's what verse 31 tells us as two become one. This is why the idea that of sex being meant for a marital relationship between a man and a woman, this sign of, of permanence within a marriage requires the bounds of covenant. Because to not do so is to say, I want you, but not all of you. I want you, but I'm not committed enough to you to be solely committed to you. I'm keeping my options open. In fact, there's actually a study just came out in the New York Times just a couple of weeks ago talking about how couples who don't cohabitate, who get married young, tend to have the lowest rate of divorce. Because there's this, this idea of waiting, this idea of saying, I'm solely 100% yours. Also, we see that this covenant relationship between complementary and interdependent men and women images Jesus' love for his church. Marriage provides the grounds to become more like Jesus. And this is why the, the uh, verse 26 uses the word sanctify, which means to make holy. This relationship is making us holy because marriage provides opportunities to repent and seek grace and to give forgiveness. There's a difference between the way that the world treats relationships and the way that the church treats relationships. Because if you go to work tomorrow, there is no forgiveness. If you mess up bad enough, you're done. And in fact, you can go to work and you can be a royal jerk as long as you get your job done, right? Most of the time. In marriage, you can't not forgive. You can't outperform your need to forgive and to seek forgiveness. You can't wash the car well enough. You can't build the deck well enough. You can't, you can't you know, make the bed well enough. You can't do anything well enough to not need to give forgiveness because what happens is when a, mar a marriage will end, not when people stop loving each other, but when they stop forgiving each other. 
Repentance is this opportunity to come clean and to put another person before yourself. Richard Koken says that God enables a patient forgiveness and gradual change that goes far beyond what is possible without God. Gospel-driven forgiveness is the glue that sticks our imperfect marriages together, gradually overcoming bitterness and despair with real hope and joy. The keys to this, the making marriage work, are repent often. Admit your mistakes often. Look, you don't have to think or look too hard to find something you need to ask for forgiveness for. I was fishing with a friend several years ago named Tyler. Uh, Tyler was the first drummer in our, our church plant in Birmingham. He played me- like metal music, like Metallica, and then brought that into the church. It was awesome. And so we were out fishing one day, and Tyler loves snakes. Matt Waldron went to Bible college with him, and he would keep snakes in his dorm room. And he loves snakes. And I was like, hey, and I'm terrified of snakes. And I said, hey, Tyler, you know, you, you say the snakes are everywhere, right? And he's like, yeah. I said, well, we're fishing. Find a snake. And he goes, oh, there's one right there. And I about came out of my skin, jumped into the water and became a fish. And, and so in that moment, I'm like, okay, they're, they're, it's all around us. If you're looking, you don't have to look too hard to find something to forgive, something to ask for forgiveness. And then we forgive freely. You have been forgiven freely by Jesus. You can forgive freely. Second question is, what are the keys to thriving relationally? I'm gonna hit these very quickly. The first is that we have to learn contentment. We have to learn to be content. Two weeks ago, I talked about how there is no such thing as a perfect marriage. No one that you look at has a perfect marriage. If you look at your own marriage, you know that it is not perfect. It always misses the mark. And so the answer is, if if you're thinking about marriage, maybe you're single and desire to be married, the answer is is not get married. If you are married, the, the answer is not that you need a different marriage or you need a better marriage. Because if you end up making marriage or a relationship your savior, it will crush you. It will either crush you or it will crush the other person because you are putting them up to an expectation that will never match reality. This is why every time I do someone's wedding, I check in after six months because you know what happens at six months? You don't like each other anymore. Can all the married couples give me an amen? Okay. You don't like each other anymore. And you know what happens about six months after that? You kind of start liking each other again. But the reality is, it's not perfect. And if you put all your expectations on that person, it will crush them. And this is why 1 Corinthians 7, both to single people and to married people, Paul says, remain as you are. Now, is he saying never get married? No. But he's tapping into this tendency for all of us to want what we don't have to be envious of what someone else has. If you're married, to look at another person and say, man, if I only had a marriage like that person, if my wife was only more like her, if my husband was more like him. Look at your single friends and say, man, it must be so nice to be able to do whatever you want, whenever you want. Those who are single, it's easy to look at another and say, man, I really just want that person's marriage. I really wish I had that marriage because that's what happiness looks like. Now, is that desire for to, to find someone or that desire to have a better marriage a bad desire? Absolutely not. You can want these things. You can de- desire a spouse, but contentment keeps us from envy because both marriage and singleness have their advantages and their disadvantages. Paul again talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. If you're single, the desire for a companion may be very real, but also Paul says that you can have a one-track mind toward the things of God. 
It's an advantage in the sense that you can fully serve him. There's less distraction. You have greater flexibility. You can go wherever you want to, whenever you want to, without much consideration. You can actually have deeper friendships because you're not, your, your attention's not divided. You know, I'm married. I can't just say, hey, Amy, we're moving to Seattle tomorrow. We're not moving to Seattle, to be clear. Like, I can't just say that. We, we gotta have some conversations. If you're married, it's the same way. You may have the joy of a face-to-face intimacy with another person. You may have this lifelong companion, but Paul says your, your attention is divided. Your worries are the things of this world. You have to slow down when you make a decision. You could be in a contentious marriage. You may have married somebody who's not the same person that they were when you said your vows. They had an accident or their personality changed or, or, or whatever it might be. It may not be the same person. Both marriage and singleness are a gift. They're God-honoring and they're perfectly valid ways to be fully human, but they are also imperfect and lacking. And they're not worth being envious over. Because verse 32 tells us that both of these states, both of these statuses should point us to Jesus. And when we learn to be content by being satisfied in Jesus first, it allows us to filter our desires through him that whether we meet a person or not, or whether your spouse changes or not, or whether you lose someone or not, you can be satisfied in Jesus who is with you in both joy and sorrow. But we also need to learn to be content because there's a good chance that your situation or status may change. If you're single, you may get married one day, but let me go ahead and tell you this. If you're not satisfied and content as a single person, you're not gonna be satisfied or content as a married person. Marriage is not salvation. The same thing for those who are married. 50% of you will be single again. We have a very young church. We don't really think about the idea that one day, prayerfully, it's 30, 40 years down the road, you're gonna lose your spouse. We have to learn to be content in both marriage and in singleness. So learning to be content. Secondly, we have to grow in godliness. You can't control the future. You can't control whether your spouse changes. You can't control when or if you meet someone. You can't control if you lose your spouse. But the one thing you can control is your own godliness. You can become the most godly person possible. Second Peter 1 verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, right now, where you are, regardless of your, your relationship status, you have everything you need to follow Jesus. And as Jesus satisfies you, as Jesus repeatedly shows you that he's enough, you end up growing in godliness. And so this means that if you are married, a husband and a wife, you, 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 can, you can be content. Now, if, if you're in a marriage that's a struggle, again, I wanna be very clear, this is never an excuse to endure, endure abuse. And in fact, if, if that's you, leave and we will help. Like I'm being dead serious. Like we will, we will help you. In fact, we've gone through a, a trauma-informed uh, uh, a training called Caring Well. You can contact me. You can contact Heather Waldrop, who's our KISS director, as well as our, um, as well as our, our coordinator for Caring Well. That's not something you endure. We will help you find help. And then if that's something you've experienced in the past, like we wanna be a safe place to talk about that. But it does mean that your spouse may not point you to Jesus your spouse may not respect you or love you enough. Your spouse may be selfish and your marriage may not be as fulfilling as you want, but you can love that person, you can serve them, and you can live like Jesus toward them because Jesus loved you well before you ever loved him. 
In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 says you can actually lead that person to Christ through that. If you're single, you may desire a spouse. But what growing in godliness does is it keeps you from, it, keeps you, it helps you do a couple of things. And one, it keeps you from settling. It keeps you from going outside of God's design for marriage. It keeps you from looking for someone who doesn't have the godly character of a Jesus follower. It, it helps you grow into the godly person you're supposed to be. And so maybe right now you're even dating. Do you wanna know, you wanna know whether this person is the right person? Let me tell you right now, commit to grow. And as you grow to follow Jesus, what begins to happen is you have the character and the grid to understand whether that person is the right person. Little plug here, this is also why the church matters. You know what you should do? You, 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 when you meet somebody, you, you, and, you, know, help, well, you want them to meet your family, right? The church is a family. Just bring them to your community group. Let them do some vetting. If you don't have older brothers, let us be your older brothers. They're like, you know, we'll beat somebody up. I'm kidding. If we have to, just kidding. Um, Whatever it is, you know, do that. If you're widowed or divorced, you can grow in godliness because if, if that's gonna be a reality one day, you can't predict loss. But as you grow in godliness, God, the knowledge of God isn't just something you know, it becomes tangible experience of his grace. And there are so many verses about God as you rest when you're weary, when you're exhausted, when you're bruised or hurting, he becomes your refuge. We gaze at Jesus together. This benefits both you and the church. Uh, again, we are a family. Verse 21 says, we submit to one another in love. And it means that strangers become family and friends in the body of Christ. And so practically what this means is that we can encourage each other and thrive relationally. So if you're married or you have a family, invite single people into your house. Invite them for dinner. Integrate them into your family rhythms. Bring them on vacation. Let them get so close that maybe they have a key to your house. Make them feel like they're a part of the family. If you're single, find a family to love and serve and befriend. We gaze at heaven, we gaze at Jesus. And what happens as we do this together is we look to Christ. Because if our focus is improving our marriages, if it's finding the right person, if it's improving ourselves so that we do, it's never gonna work. C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven, you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth you will get neither. Fix our eyes on Jesus who shapes your desires because as you look to Jesus, the gospel begins to transform you. And as you see Jesus, you see how he perfectly loved you as a part of the bride of Christ. You see how Jesus was perfectly content with God as his father. You see that he knew what it meant to be with the brokenhearted. Just a couple of questions as, as we reflect today is first of all, is am I content in God right now, as I am? Secondly, how do I need to grow in godliness? And then thirdly, is my focus primarily on my situation and my status, or is it on Jesus? Let's pray. 